This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Welcome to an encore replay series of Heritage Matters. We are replaying the best of series that we played over the Christmas New Year period this year. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Ryman Healthcare. I'm Dougal Stevenson. Like most of you, we're on holiday at the moment. So for your listening pleasure, we've selected a series of stories we ran earlier in the year. In this program, Anne Barraclough reports on how Dunedin was affected by the great 1918 flu epidemic. Judy Southworth discovers how Murdering Beach got its name. Gregor Campbell looks at a murder most foul, and we're told why a policeman's lot is not a happy one. The flu pandemic that emerged in November 1918 was more virulent than any recorded before or since, killing more than 15 million people worldwide, 8,600 in New Zealand. It had a sudden onset, rapid progression, often with pneumonic complications to death, sometimes within hours of onset, the patient often turning black shortly before death. It attacked most ferociously healthy young adult males aged 30 to 34 and females aged 25 to 29 and was seven times more devastating among the Maori, wiping out 4% of the Maori population. Coal mining districts, institutions and military camps were worst affected. Una Rattray, a Dunedin girl returning on the mail steamer Niagara, told of her experience. I had been at school in England for three years and had joined the Red Cross nursing convalescent soldiers. My mother and I were coming home to Dunedin. Just after Honolulu was the first any of the passengers knew of the flu outbreak. Many of the crew were laid low and a few of the passengers as well. It was felt among those on board that the ship's doctor was very much to blame for not putting the first sailor who went down with it into isolation. So many of the stewards were down, they had to call on the passengers to help. We were all waiting on each other in the dining room. And I remember Mr Massey and Sir Joseph Ward had the job of serving coffee in the lounge, which amused us all very much. Then two nights before we got to Auckland, a nurse who was returning from the war asked if anyone could help nurse the sick men. And since I had done nursing in England, I said I would. I spent two nights in the ship's hospital, which was right aft, and it was very rough those last few days. I well remember the horrible feeling of being left alone with twelve sailors, all very ill, with only one oil lamp swinging to and fro. There I was with all these delirious men, some calling out and trying to get up. There was nothing one could do for them except give them drinks and sponge them and keep them in bed. It was a horrifying experience and it's stuck in my mind ever since. A third to half the population was affected. In some towns, numbers of sick reached two-thirds of the population and in some areas 80%. 
J.H. Carleen of Dunedin experienced the first symptoms of the flu as the mayor read out the good news of the armistice. While standing there listening, all of a sudden I felt ill and staggered back to my lodgings. I beat it off to bed. In the morning, a friend said he was going to get a doctor. I got such a fright that I jumped up and then the blood just squirted out of my nose about three feet. Such was the pressure. I looked at my hands and my nails were black. The doctor said I'd be all right now after that loss of blood. Later that morning, one of the staff gave me a cup of tea. Three o'clock that afternoon, she passed away. So devastating was this plague. After a few days, I was able to get up and wander about the streets. I can recall the emptiness. No shops open. The undertakers were flat out collecting the dead. At the station were railway carriages, where the public filed through and were fumigated. But this was to no avail. Within a week, the flu was in full spate from one end of the country to the other. The army camps fared the worst. Isolated mining areas, such as nightcaps, fared almost as badly, while other districts escaped virtually unscathed. Lower death rates in Christchurch and Dunedin can be partially attributed to better organisation and slightly earlier warning, but institutions were badly hit. Jean Thompson talks of the effect of the flu at Seacliff Psychiatric Hospital. I was charged sister of Ward 5, which held women patients. Flu hit the male side first, and to make matters worse, we had a week of misty weather coming in from the sea, which meant that the patients were confined indoors. Two days later, I had six cases, fortunately all in single rooms. Two days after that, I went down with it myself. I tried to keep going, but I had a temperature of 103 degrees and finally had to give in and go to bed. I tried to get up, but I fell on the floor. Another nurse had gone down by this time, and when Dr Gray came on his rounds, he said, I'm going to isolate all of you at the far end of the hospital. We had over 100 female patients ill with flu and lost only eight, plus Nurse Wilton. We always maintained it was thanks to Dr Gray for isolating us promptly at the start. There was not more serious. On the male side, the flu cases were all put in the big hall. They had 314 male patients, though there were only 10 deaths. These cases had all been heavy drinkers in their freedom. Some of the male staff were also heavy drinkers, off-duty, and they died too. During the epidemic, nearly all the female flu patients lost their hair. One nurse was completely bald. The nurse who slept next to me had caught the flu while on leave in Christchurch. Her hair fell out so fast she filled a shoebox in one day. That flu was an experience one does not easily forget. The worst rural deaths occurred in Otago and Southland. In Owaka, the onset was blamed on a special train that took crowds of revellers to Dunedin for the armistice celebrations in early November. In Tahakopa, only 12 people in a population of 186 escaped. In Dunedin, a family of five little girls was orphaned. The granddaughter of one of the girls, Maureen Smith, told their story. Both my mother's parents, Tom and Annie Holt, died in hospital within an hour of each other. The oldest daughter, Ruby, was aged seven and the youngest, Nellie, was only 11 months old. The hospital rang Sam Wilson, a taxi driver, to take the news to the family. Two of Tom's sisters were looking after the girls at home in Melbourne Street, but they were taken to the orphanage run by the Sisters of Mercy in McAndrew Road for a few nights. Annie's father, a stern, hard man, wanted the five girls sent to the industrial home. 
Grandmother Holt took the three youngest, while two of Tom's sisters took the two eldest girls. Uncle Jim, who lived in Clyde, wanted to adopt Nellie, but this was not allowed because he was a Catholic and the Holts were Presbyterian. All five girls kept in touch and were good friends all through life. Schools, universities and many businesses were closed and public gatherings were cancelled. Hospitals were quickly overwhelmed with influenza and pneumonia patients, so emergency hospitals were quickly set up in church and school halls, under canvas, and even a racecourse pavilion was used. Sid Muirhead of Omaru told of the steps families took to treat the flu. My father arrived home from work earlier than usual, very flushed and running a high temperature. Dad indicated he could not eat or drink. He had lost his voice, but mother insisted that he have a plate of gruel. Dad indicated he had a bottle of whiskey planted in a cupboard, and if she were to add some to the gruel, he would eat it. In all innocence, mother tipped half the bottle of whiskey into the gruel. Dad drank it quickly and very soon broke out in a sweat. He perspired copiously, and the bedclothes had to be changed several times. His remarks on regaining his voice were quite incoherent for some time. But he made a quick recovery and always maintained that it was the quantity of whiskey and the shock and impact that brought this miraculous recovery. The Spanish flu epidemic started in Dunedin on November the 4th, 1918, and was finished by the 20th of December. The total admissions for Dunedin Hospital was 701, of which 530 were pneumonic. 172 died. However, Dunedin had the least severe epidemic of New Zealand's four main cities. Many of the flu victims are buried in the Northern Cemetery. I am grateful to Geoffrey W. Rice and Warwick Brunton for their books Black November and The Medicine of the Future, from which most of the information came. Anne Barraclough reporting. There are several versions of how a murdering beach got its name. Before Dunedin was settled, sealers and Māori clashed there with tragic consequences. Here's Judy Southworth with that story. Most Dunedin residents are familiar with the small Otago West Harbour beach known as Murdering Beach or Whareakeake. A popular surfing beach with a steep gravel road down to it, it's north-facing and separated from nearby Long Beach by a high headland. A Māori trading village was based there, and many finished and unfinished greenstone implements and a heitiki, commonly known as tiki, have been found. In 1819, an editorial in the Sydney Gazette stated that since 1790, heitiki had been brought to Sydney by sealers and sold as idols. William Tucker, described by Dunedin's Peter Entwistle as a convict, sealer, art dealer and trader in heitiki and Māori heads, would later come to be killed at Whareakeake, now known as Murdering Beach. Some researchers think that Tucker was one of the few voluntary settlers in New Zealand. He had a trading interest in curios and may have encouraged the manufacture of heitiki. He had settled at Whareakeake in a pa on the swampy flats behind the beach, surrounded by steep hills and with a palisade along the water's edge. Around 500 people are thought to have lived there. At least some of the dwellings were rectangular with stone hearths. Tucker's life would likely have been quite pleasant. Māori were settled up and down the coast here, Tarawai Point on the Otago Peninsula, Long Beach, Purakanui and Warrington. He had been sealing and whaling, probably from Riverton, and in 1811 
had stolen a preserved head and escaped a large group of war canoes pursuing him. The theft gained him notoriety and was seen for many years as the reason why Māori attacked him and other sealers at Whareakeake. However, a 2003 document was discovered written between 1848 and 1850 by a Wakawaiti missionary, the Reverend Charles Creed, that gave another reason for the attacks. The crew from the ship Brothers had met sealers from another ship called the Sydney Cove, which was nearby, when the Māori chief Te Warapira, or Tawahia pilfered, quote, a red shirt, a knife, and some other trivial things. The sealer whose belongings they were stabbed the chief who died. The Sydney Cove then moved to the Clutha Mouth, attacked Māori there, and killed another chief, Te Pahi. Meanwhile, some of the brothers' crew made their way south by open boat, but were attacked and killed at Molyneux Harbour, near the mouth of the Clutha River. This was thought to be around 1811. The schooner Boyd arrived in Sydney and reported picking up the remaining brothers' crew and also that, quote, several boats were in various employs, having been barbarously murdered and mostly devoured by the cannibal natives. These killings were now seen as the reprisal for the death of Tawahia's shirt theft and consequent death. By late 1817, Tucker had returned to Australia and noted that the Hobart Town Gazette was announcing the departure of the brig Sophia on a sealing voyage under Captain James Kelly. Tucker joined 15 others in the ship's crew, and the Sophia eventually anchored in Otago Harbour, which was then known as Port Daniel. On arrival, and Kelly going ashore with crew members, the Maoris showed that they knew Tucker. They appeared friendly, and Tucker spoke to the crew about the Maori practices and attitudes. A visit to nearby Whareakeake was proposed. Kelly, Tucker and five others took the ship out of the harbour and along the coast to their fatal rendezvous. On arrival at Whareakeake, Tucker was again recognised by the Māori. The sealers made a present of iron to the chief and went inland to the palisaded compound. Here they were greeted by a Lascar, the Lascars were Indian seamen, who spoke Māori and English and offered to assist Kelly in bargaining for potatoes. Meanwhile, about 60 Māori gathered around. Tucker went into a house and there came a shout as Te Matahiri seized Kelly and two other crew, calling on another to kill Tucker. Kelly fought off his attackers with a billhook and wounded Te Matahiri before escaping. Te Matahiri's son killed the other two crew in revenge. Whilst Kelly clambered onto the departing launch, Tucker emerged, was seized and killed. Kelly found on his return to the ship that there were around 150 Māori aboard who professed to know nothing of the incident on shore. Seeing the Māori as threatening, Kelly ordered his men to attack, which they did, with their sealing knives. It's said that the crew threw overboard the bodies of 16 Māori they'd killed and that 50 more were wounded. The crew captured the chief, Karako, and according to the crew account, he was shot in the neck and died. The following day, or thereabouts, Kelly is said to have destroyed 42 canoes and felled more Māori and soon after landed again at what is thought to be the Te Reoni beach area across the harbour and fired the village, reducing it to a heap of ashes. An alternative version, according to the Reverend Creed's manuscript, has Kelly on returning to the ship and finding Māori aboard, bound Karako in chains and killed three women and threw them overboard with a fourth escaping. Two days later, a canoe came near the Sophia, and Karako attempted to throw off his garments and chains and jump overboard. Kelly wounded him in the leg and also wounded two in the canoe. 
the Maori got to shore and fled, while a pursuing crew destroyed the canoe. While these two accounts describe similar sequences of events, there are significant differences. The European account leaves many more Maori dead, at least 17, not three. It doesn't mention that any were women. It acknowledges Karaka's escape, though claims he later died. It says 42 canoes were destroyed, not one, and it claims a harbourside village was destroyed. Māori went on to kill another 17 Pākehā after this action, so their fatalities may have been higher than originally reported. Kelly returned to Hobart in 1818 with 3,000 seal skins and news of the death of Tucker and the other two crew. He didn't report his own reprisal. In fact, he explicitly denied having taken revenge. Decades were to pass before news of his counterattack was published in the Australasian press. The theft of the shirt and reprisal is now seen as the triggering cause of the deaths at Whareakeake. An incident 21 years later, in 1839, further added to the story of murdering Beach. Richard Driver from Bristol, a sailor and whaler, is said to have come ashore at Whareakeake for water supplies. He was second mate on a ship called the John and Edward. All but two were said to have been killed, and Driver taken to the Kaitahu chief. The chief's daughter, Motoitoi, threw her cloak around Driver and claimed him in marriage. They are said to have lived in a cave, Maria's cave, at Whareakeake, but other reports say it was at a nearby bay. Another version is that Driver was enticed to shore as the Pākehā go-between so that Matoitoi's people could buy goods directly from European ships without paying inflated prices from traders. Driver and Matoitoi had three children and she died in 1846. Driver, who is said to have fathered two more children, later married 17-year-old Elizabeth Robertson, who'd arrived on the Philip Lang in 1849. The Reverend Thomas Burns officiated. They had 11 children, descendants of whom live on in Dunedin. The sources of these reports were Peter Entwistle's book, Tucker, A Vignette Life of William Tucker, Victoria University's Electronic Text Collection, and Rachel Oven's book, The Tale of Mrs. Possum. This is Judy Southworth. In researching 19th century crime reports, Gregor Campbell has discovered the reports were often far more graphic than those considered suitable today. Brace yourself. An 1883 Evening Star report of a suicide murder in Manor Place spared its readers none of the gory details. The introduction of dynamite to the New Zealand scene was a minor revolution in mining and civil engineering. It also had its effect on other activities, as reported in the Evening Star of July 7th, 1883. Shortly after six o'clock last evening, the residents of Manor Place were startled with the intelligence that a murder and suicide had been committed in the locality. It seems that at about that hour, Mr Donald Cargill and his brother, whilst conversing at the corner of Lees Street, had their attention attracted by a flickering light some 50 yards up Manor Place. They took it to proceed from children playing with crackers until they suddenly heard a loud report as of the firing of some explosive material. Hurrying up the street to the spot whence the sound came, they were horrified to find a man's body hanging over a fence outside the street line and the body of a female lying prostrate at the man's feet. Both bodies were headless, the pavement being strewn with brains and covered with blood. The sight was sickening beyond description. The bodies, which presented a most ghastly appearance, 
were removed to the morgue by Constable Parker. On inquiry, we learned that the victim of this terrible tragedy, the first of its kind in the colony, was Mrs. Stevenson, and that the murderer was her husband, George Timothy Stevenson. Mrs. Stevenson is well known in Dunedin. She had for some time past occupied the position of head dressmakers at Saunders McBeath and Company. She was a daughter of Mr. Stenhouse of Maitland Street and has been separated some time from her husband, who formerly was clerk in the Bank of New South Wales at Cromwell and who quite recently has been engaged as groom for Campbell Crust and Company. The parties, as is well known, have been on bad terms for some time, and Stevenson, although being denied access to his children, of whom he had two, has been known to entertain feelings of revenge towards the unfortunate woman and her parents. In May last, he was charged, at the instance of Mr Stenhouse, at the city police court with threatening conduct, and was committed to prison for seven days. It is said that he has personally dogged the footsteps of his wife for weeks. It is surmised that last evening he followed her home from her place of business and overtook her in Manor Place. Of course, what transpired at their meeting can never be known, as no one was near at the time. It is believed that dynamite was the explosive substance used. The affair has created the greatest excitement in the neighbourhood. The seemingly eternal columnist Civis, then writing for the Otago Witness, followed up the story with an attempt at humour, which shows that the sensitivity and taste of newspaper columnists has greatly improved since the 19th century. The political uses of dynamite are pretty generally understood, thanks to the enterprising experiments of nihilists and Fenians. Dynamite for domestic use is a novelty, and one can hardly forbear speculating on the tremendous possibilities which this new application of the explosive opens up. It has been proved by experiment in Dunedin this week that a man can simultaneously decapitate himself and his wife by a portable apparatus not too big for the waistcoat pocket. Fancy a man getting about with a guillotine in his waistcoat pocket. A guillotine, moreover, that can lop two heads at once, and in the twinkling of an eye. No guillotine ever did its work with the thoroughness of Stevenson's cartridge. There was always a ghastly doubt whether the decorated head, when the executioner lifted it from the basket of sawdust to show it to the crowd, might not be mutely conscious of the whole proceeding. The brain remained intact. Why should the mere passing of a knife blade between the cervical vertebra annul consciousness or make pain impossible? It is conceivable that a severed head may die slowly, going finally to sleep only because starved of its customary supplies of blood. Dynamite, on the other hand, not only shears off the brain pan, but dissipates the brain itself in a shower of spray. Stevenson and his wife could not possibly know what hurt them, or know that they were hurt at all. To half-crazy people, and a considerable proportion of mankind are more than half-crazy, death by dynamite must present itself as the most attractive form of suicide. Domestic differences not susceptible of adjustment by protection orders or the divorce court may be summarily and finally arranged by dynamite. The husband will put his arm around his wife's neck for the last time and then instantly the universal blank and nothingness.
I observed that the coroner was not of opinion that the sale of dynamite could be regulated. I should say that nothing would be easier. The sale of poisons is regulated, yet there are a hundred bars of laudanum and other poisons for medical uses for one who has any just occasion to buy dynamite. Why should not the sale of this explosive be a government monopoly and be conducted under conditions rigorous enough to prevent so destructive an agent getting into improper hands? Something of that kind must be done, or the Stevenson horror will be imitated. Drunken husbands will carry home a cartridge as a quietus to the missus and children. Goaded wives will keep sudden death in the drawer or workbox, handy against a moment of utter desperation. I should not like to trust even Mrs. Sivis with a dynamite cartridge in some of her moves. This is Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. Now Guy Howell recalls some of his time on the beat. When constabulary too is to be done, to be done, a policeman's law is not an abbey one. One day we were down in the area just above the uh, Maori Road steps that led down to Maori Road, and there's quite an elevated uh, area there, probably 30 or 40 feet down to the Tarsil Road that led up to the Jubilee Park. And someone clever, it certainly wasn't me, had an idea that wouldn't it be good if we could um, make use of the soft fur cones that were all over the ground. The idea was that someone would stand on the point of this um, promontory of the cliff and shout out when a car was puttering up the hill and the uh, other ten or a dozen of us had this clearing that we could see a view of the cars coming up and and someone would yell out, three, two, one, throw, and there'd be a dozen or more of these soft fur cones thrown down and land on the car as that putted up the hill, and no doubt most of them hit the, the windscreen or the roof and, and give the driver one awful shock. And we had a lot of fun doing that. And, and then one uh, day, one uh, car that came up was a... Uh, a green A40 and the scout unfortunately didn't identify it as the Mornington policeman's private car, Constable Ted Adams and uh, so he said car coming, so three, two, one throw and bang, 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 bang and all of a sudden someone in the in the gang realised it was the Mornington policeman's car and we thought, God, what's happening now we're, we're done for 15, 20 minutes later just on the action of another fuselage heading off to hit another car and there's a booming voice from behind right i know who you all are every one of you report to my office the mornington police station at two o'clock this afternoon and then he walked straight back to his car and drove off he was up on queen's drive well each of us agreed that we'd front up to the police station take our medicine and we did and we dressed down he, uh, he got his black book out and he wrote our names in and put a big cross in his uh, little black book and rumour had it in the neighbourhood that if you got two crosses in Mr Adams' little black book, you went to jail. We had been little tinkers and we'd been definitely out fox that day. So that was my introduction to the police. This programme, which will be repeated on Sunday at 7pm, is kindly sponsored by Ryman Healthcare and brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust.
Ryman Healthcare prides itself on offering some of the most resident-friendly terms in New Zealand. Ryman Healthcare's Francis Hodgkins and Yvette Williams Retirement Villages in Dunedin offer the very best of retirement living and care. For more information and to discuss your retirement living options, please phone Kate on 455-7936. Ryman Healthcare. Supporting Southern Heritage Trust and the Heritage Matters Program. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.